Well, this morning we're continuing through the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking uh, really at, at chapters 22 to 24 today. Uh, but before we jump into the text, I want to uh, take the uh, opportunity as a Virginia boy to, uh, you know, herald the acclaim of the University of Virginia men's basketball team that for the second year in a row, they are the national champions of men's collegiate basketball. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't also tell you that the probably the only reason they're doing this for the second year in a row is because they were unable to defend their title during the national championship uh, this past year as it was canceled because of the pandemic. But, you know, that's neither here uh, nor there. Well, let me just say this. UVA's basketball team, it, it by no means is a slouch, right? They're, they've been on the national stage before, but they're also not these powerhouses like Kentucky or Duke who get all the best um, uh, uh, high school basketball players, right? In fact, uh, many people would uh, basically attach a lot of their success to their head coach, Tony Bennett. See, Tony Bennett has these five pillars that he tries to build into his basketball players. There's this. It's humility, passion, unity, servanthood, and thankfulness. And Tony Bennett uh, has been uh, known to uh, basically set up his practices, set up his study halls, encourage his men uh, to live out these five pillars wherever they are. In fact, he, he structures everything in such a way so that uh, at the end of a game, when there's three seconds left, he knows exact, they know exactly what to do when they have the ball. Even uh, when they're off the court, uh, there are these stories of him going to his players and saying, hey, uh, are you willing to give up some minutes so that we can succeed as a team, right? Uh, embodying these pictures of, of humility and servanthood. His players have stepped up and said, sure. Here's what I think this is a picture of. Uh, you know, whenever we've been on a team and we've had a boss or a manager or a coach or whatever that may be, usually they will have in place some sort of system that is fostering character, their character and their values. It's building, in, building it into the lives of those people. And we all know that we are shaped by those systems usually, right? Well, as we jump into the text today, and something that uh, I believe Scripture teaches is that human beings uh, are always transformed by our coaches or by our leaders. And and what the Bible would actually say is is neither of those things. It would say uh, people are always transformed by what we worship, by what we follow, by what we offer our lives to. To get to the point, we're shaped by whatever God, little g, God, that we're following. We've seen in the past as we've walked through the book of Deuteronomy pictures uh, of this unique God uh, that the Israelites are following that that is the same God that that we would say as Christians that we follow today, that that he is one, right? There are no other real gods. It's just him. That he is the creator God. Deuteronomy 4 talks about that, who who took uh, and formed and gave order out of nothing. We've seen pictures over and over again that one of the unique qualities of this God is he is perfectly just and perfectly loving. He's a God who actually desires intimacy with his people. He saved them generously from the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and he says, I'm here and I want you to love me and I want to love you back. That's the uniqueness of this God that they're following. Now, let me say this, uh, just kind of a side note. I've actually considered in the last week uh, whether or not we uh, kind of punt this whole series on the book of Deuteronomy, in part because I know there are people who are tuning in uh, who may be new to the Christian faith or haven't been around church for a while, and some of the passages that we have been talking about and that we're talking about today are really, really hard. 
And I'm like, why don't we go to like John or something, right? Let's just make this easy for a little bit. But at least for this week, I haven't gone there. And here's why. Um, Because the book of Deuteronomy is in the Bible. Let me explain. As I've listened to a lot of stories of deconversion uh, or people who are antagonistic to the faith, they usually aren't quibbling about Philippians or the book of John. Sometimes they are. But usually, do you know what some of the hang-ups are? Passages like the ones we're going to read today out of the book of Deuteronomy. As I've studied the book of Deuteronomy and studied these laws, what I realize is if you just read it on its face and you don't carefully look into it, uh, then yeah, they're troublesome. But as you do digging, it's actually uh, caused me to worship God and see his uniqueness. I think it's important that we don't ignore these passages. Here's the other thing I would say is that as Christians, uh, we at least uh, say that we believe in the full counsel of God's work. We believe it all to be authoritative uh, and inspired, right, profitable for teaching and training and rebuking and correcting uh, so that uh, a man may be thoroughly equipped for righteousness. Yet we never read it and we don't know how to apply it. Friends, I believe that if we mine the principles that we find here and look at the character of God and apply it to our lives, much like playing under Tony Bennett's program, it will shape us to look more and more like our unique, loving, just, intimate God. Last week, Tim Geiger did a masterful job with a really hard passage that I later apologized for assigning him, uh, but by looking at the big picture of the 50-plus verses or laws, I'm sorry, that are found in chapters 21 to 25. Today, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of these laws. And so here's the outline I would offer to you today, is that we are shaped into God's character to look more and more like him as we reflect his order, his intimacy, and his generous justice in the way that he intends. We're shaped into his character as we reflect order, intimacy, and his generous justice in the way that he intends. And so Deuteronomy 22, let's just start off by reading verses 1 to 4 together. This is, this is kind of the easier one, so, so let's jump in. Moses writes this. He says, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he doesn't live near you, uh, and you don't know what to do, uh, or sorry, and you do not know who he is, You shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother comes looking for it or seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him, and you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses, and you find, but you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him lift it up again. Interesting text. Let me pray for us as we jump in this morning. Lord, will you... Be with us as we dig into hard passages of Scripture. But, Lord, you tell us that this is good for us. You tell us that these things still point us to the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak in and through me and give me the words? Will you protect my words? And, Lord, help me just to get out of the way. And I pray that your Spirit will work in the hearts of every person who will watch or hear this, um, wherever they may be and whenever that may be. Meet us here, we pray, in your name. Amen. Well, we're shaped to look more and more like him as we reflect his order. Uh, And so uh, let's talk about verses 1 to 4. These are pictures of God uh, calling his people to restore order. What do I mean by that? Well, essentially, as we read, we will see that disorder has actually happened, right? Verse 1, 
there are some lost things. There's a lost ox. There's a lost sheep. In verse 3, he says any lost thing, right? If it's a garment. He's saying if, you're, if you find them, if you find it, either take it to him, or if you don't know who it is, take it to your house and keep it there until he comes looking for it. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, hey, if you walk and you see uh, your brother's donkey or ox in a ditch, go and help him out. And it wasn't just as simple as there's a donkey laying down, and why can't that weak guy like, get him up? Now, an ox, I, I dare you to try to get a, an ox out of a ditch. But they usually had a heavy load on him. So he's like, help him. This is what I would call the lost wallet law or the decent human being law, right? But here's the term I want you to pay attention to. In verse 1 and 3 and 4, there is one word he uses, ignore. He says, don't ignore them. You may not ignore them. That term ignore can also be translated as hide yourself from them. Now, friends, come on, let's just be real for just a second. We've all had that moment where we saw the lost wallet sitting there, and you're like, well, I don't want to pick it up. I don't want to be tempted to take the money out of it. Uh, but, but I also don't want to pick it up because it means I probably need to look at the ID and find whose it is. And that's just a hassle. I'm really busy, right? We've had, come on. We've had those moments. I know we've had those moments. What God's people is, or what God is calling his people to do is he's saying, no, no, no. I, I want you to maybe inconvenience yourself for the sake of your neighbor. Here's an illustration that may have come to mind as you listen to it, as you, talk, as, as you think about passing by or ignoring lost things. Jesus, all the way forward in Luke chapter 10, he is being questioned by a lawyer who uh, is saying, Jesus, what must I do to, eternal, or to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And by the way, that's what we're reading right now. And a lawyer would be very familiar with this. And he basically summarizes the law, which is what we've been talking about for a while. He says, well, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, great, nailed it, go and do likewise, right? And then the lawyer, oh, he asked the follow-up question. It's always dangerous when Jesus gets asked follow-up questions. He says, who is my neighbor, Jesus? So then Jesus tells a really challenging story to this lawyer. He says, there was a man, a Jewish man, who basically gets robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And then two people walk by him who everybody hearing this story would have said they're the ones who should have helped him because they not only were a priest, was one of them, or a Levite, which was a person in high standing in the temple, they surely should have helped him, but they were also his neighbor. He was a Jewish man. They were Jewish leaders. They didn't. They ignored him. They hid themselves from him. Who was the one that actually helped him? Well, you know the title of the story probably. You've heard it somewhere. It was the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan is not viewed at all as a neighbor of the Jews. In fact, they are viewed as an enemy. They hated each other. But guess who stopped? Guess who helped? At great expense to himself. The Samaritan. Jesus asks this follow-up question, which proved to be a neighbor? And Jesus says, it's the one who showed mercy. Ouch. Oh. That's hard, right? Fernando A.G. says, Most people would agree that thoughtful behavior, common decency, or in short supply are simply forgotten in hurried lives of emails, cell phones, and multitasking. We are no longer doing inconvenient things and adjusting our behavior out of concern for our neighbors. God and his law, in these kind of weird, strange laws, is saying, Hey, (laughs) You as my people, I want you to be willing to disrupt the order of your life to help bring order to others. 
These laws call God's people to live laws of radical concern, even for those who oppose us, as we saw in the Good Samaritan. So can I just encourage you in this day of pandemic, because in our setting where New Life Dresher is, it's an it's a upper middle to upper class church, and there is nothing wrong with that, right? But I am afraid that we are insulated. I know I certainly am insulated from some of the intense suffering that is already happening via this pandemic. And so maybe a dangerous and scary prayer that we should pray as an application to these laws is this. Lord, show me the disorder that I am hiding myself from and where you would have me reflect your order in the life of another. Show me the disorder I am hiding myself from and how you might have me bring order to a life or a situation of another. Because that is characteristic or a shaping value of these laws in God's people. Here's a second point. We are shaped as we reflect intimacy. So let me just give you a caveat as we jump into this. And I sent this out to our congregation that I'm going to be talking about sex here. And so you, if you have a little bit, it'll be about PG, um, depending on the parenting style, PG-10, I don't know. Uh, but just know I'm going to talk about it. It's not going to be explicit, but uh, there might be some things that are challenging if you have a sensitive child. So just now's a good time to uh, pause it and, and go have somebody, uh, have your little ones do something else if you're uncomfortable uh, not interpreting this for them. But but let me give you some parameters as we read some of these texts. We need to go back a few thousand years to a very different society. These laws were not given into a 21st century American or Asian or African context. It was very different. And I would say this. The world in which these laws were written into, it was horrific for women. Women had zero rights. Women were treated as total property. And so as we get into this, I want you to at least strain your brain a little bit to see that God's law in this context was actually revolutionary. Now, I'm not saying uh, I'm going to answer all of your questions. I'm going to make all the hard things go away uh, with this. but, But just bear with me as we try to muddle through some really hard topics. And let me also encourage you to not just lift, uh, do eisegesis, isolate one text out of the Bible. I want you to look at the full counsel of Scripture, as we talked about it earlier, from Genesis 1, where he makes male and female equally in his image, all the way up to Galatians 3, where God says, in the gospel, both are of equal value in my sight, and how Jesus empowers women who would have never been empowered in that culture, and how people like Phoebe in Romans 16 are helping plant churches and lead in the church. And so look at it all as we're challenged with this hard passage. Let me read you one passage outside of Deuteronomy as we walk into this from Genesis 2, 23 and 24. And this is the creation account. This is after God created Adam and very wisely said, man, it ain't good for that dude to be alone. And so uh, he made Eve and, and Adam says this when he sees her. He says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Why do I read that passage to you as I jump into these harder texts? Well, it shows how God um, put together sex and marriage, right? Verse 24, where, where it says, two will become one flesh. Well, that is the, the, the most intimate one un, uh, uh, <laughs> union that we see in all of human relationship. And, and it at least 
uh, is unpacking this idea of the physical bond of sex in marriage. Now, I'll also say the context of the sexual act is always set or should be set in the context of the marriage relationship. The reason I say that is because verse 23 had kind of that wonky language, right? Where Adam's like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We're not used to that language. That's weird to us. Like, what what was he saying? Like, he was tripping. And, And so Adam essentially was using covenant language. That's language two entities, be it uh, or, or not organizations, but like nations or people would use when they were uh, coming together to form a covenant relationship with one another. And so what God is doing here is he's setting the context of the sexual relationship within the oneness of marriage. The reason I read that is I, I want you to just, uh, knowing that context that God put in place, understand these laws speaking into disordered oneness that we see in chapter 22 verses 13 through 30. And I'm not going to read all of these. I'm going to reference them, but there's six very broken circumstances that are addressed in these laws. A couple of things to touch on. One of them in verse 13 to 21 is, is the example of a man on an unhappy wedding night. You know, the first night of marriage, uh, he just wasn't happy with it. And so in order to get the bride price back, he had to pay the dad in order to marry his daughter. That was how things worked back then. In order to get his bride price back, he lies to the father and he says, hey, she's been with another man. I want my money back. Well, it's a lie. And that was pretty common. You can imagine how often that happens. And so what God does is he puts a law in place and he says, hey, no, we are not taking away the dignity of that woman uh, with Uh, And we're going to actually punish these sorts of lies. There's a process that's going to be in place to investigate these things. There's other forms of what uh, in the Bible would be called adultery. There's an affair with another man's wife. There's an affair with an engaged person. Um, There's uh, some pretty horrible interactions. There's one one thing I want to touch on in verse 25 that um, I wish I had more time to go into, but I I just want to highlight it. Uh, God says if there is a woman traveling in the countryside, and she's alone, and she gets assaulted, and she cries for help, but because she's out in the wilderness, nobody would hear. She doesn't have to have the the normal group of witnesses that was standard in that day. In fact, if a woman comes back and says, this man assaulted me, and the man said, no, I didn't, the man would win outright, no questions. God actually sides with the vulnerable and the powerless who would be underrepresented in that day, and says, no, he loses his life on her word and her word alone. That's worth digging into. Uh, but, but I want you to see that that was a revolutionary concept in that day. Here's what all this is. All of these laws uh, are pictures of disordered oneness, of the brokenness of what God would say is, is the one in flesh union of sex within the context of marriage. All right, so if that's disordered oneness, here's broken oneness. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, it says this. Bear with me here, ready? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, it doesn't say what the indecency is, which is really messed up. He says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if that latter man dies who took her as his wife, 
Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now at this point you're probably going, Anthony, maybe you should punt the book of Deuteronomy because that is rough stuff and I don't even know what it begins to say. You probably have the same questions I did as I approached the text. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts as we think about this. First, remember I said women in this day and age were treated as property. So the idea of divorce wasn't happen, it didn't happen in legal context like it does today, where you have to go and file papers and, and say there's irreconcilable differences or adultery or whatever it may be. Back then, it was a domestic function where the husband just said, eh, I'm not really happy with you anymore. We're divorced. And we just send her away. And it would be really challenging for her to remarry to a decent human being because um, she has already been with another man and there is no proof that that was a a lawful uh, marriage that she was involved with. So she would have her reputation totally soiled throughout this. And so the fact that God uh, actually says there needs to be a certificate of divorce that she can take with her to say, I was married once before and he dismissed me, that was significant. Here's the other thing. You might be like, Why on earth does he say she can't go back to the first husband in the midst of this? Again, it's that property piece. After that man dies, uh, the second husband, the first husband can say, "Mm, I forgot all that stuff that I didn't really like about you before. Um, You used to be my wife. You need to come back home. What God's doing is he's actually giving her rights to not go back to that first husband based on his whims of just wanting to treat her like property. Now, as you read this, you might go, it sure sounds like God's okay with frivolous divorce, right? I mean, as you read this, you're like, that's just strange. That's kind of how it feels. Well, if you had that question, you're not the first person in history to have it. In fact, a group of Pharisees or religious leaders had the same question for Jesus in Matthew 19. And they walked up to him in 19.3 and it says, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus kind of answers. He says, have you not read... The one who created them in the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Heard that before, right? He says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is viewing this, first of all, as a wedding ceremony that we saw in Genesis 2. But then the Pharisees go, Well, then why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And Jesus, I wonder what the look on his face was here, but he says this. He said, because of your hardness of heart, isn't it interesting he said your hardness of heart? Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. Friends, why am I going into detail uh, to talk about kind of these the ways that God ropes off via the law, uh, this oneness of marriage. Well, if you're like me, you have a new quarantine office. Uh, My new quarantine office is my dining room table, and I share my quarantine office with several other people, uh, my son and my daughter who are going to school, and my wife who uh, works uh, at her own uh, job uh, several days a week. And so um, there have been times where I have developed quarantine art. 
Uh, what I mean by that is uh, my kids and I are talking, or Sarah and I are talking about something, and, and I want to explain it via a visual. So I will grab a napkin from our pile of napkins there on our table, and I will draw a little diagram. I did this a couple weeks ago and showed them, like, oh, okay, great. And we move on and we keep working. Well, I've noticed something happened to that piece of quarantine art. Uh, essentially, it moved because, you know, every night we've got to eat, so we pile everything in one corner of the table, and then we'll move it to the next one so we can, you know, work the next day. And, and eventually, I ended up using my piece of quarantine art uh, at dinner one night to wipe my hands of food. Now, contrast that with a Van Gogh at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. With that, it, it's quite different. The treatment of it is quite different than my quarantine art, right? It's roped off. It's protected. There's alarms. There's like a sniper who will get you if you even come close to touching uh, that piece of art. Why? Because that Van Gogh is valuable. Friends, these laws are not here for his people back then. And what we see in his treatment of sex and marriage in the New Testament, it's not there just to kill all of our fun and all of our joy, which is often how we view it. But rather, it is to protect the most intimate human act from being treated like a piece of quarantine art. When the intimacy of human sexuality and marriage is diminished to simply an appetite to appease, it's lust. It cheapens sex to a piece of quarantine art. It becomes common. It becomes easily thrown away. Do you know what metaphor is most often used in Scripture to depict the intimacy of the relationship between God and his people? It's marriage. In the Old Testament, Israel was the bride. God was the bridegroom. And when they sinned against God, he didn't just say, hey, you just broke my law, this transactional thing. No, it was in relational terms. He said, you committed adultery on me. In the New Testament, we have this picture of Jesus, the groom, Ephesians 5, laying down his life for his bride, the church. At the end of time, we see this wedding feast of the Lamb. And so, friends, what happens when we cheapen uh, things like marriage and sex on this top of eternity is that we're displaying that even the intimacy of that relationship, we cheapen it. We treat it as a piece of quarantine art. Tim Keller says this, Lust says, what can you do for me? Love says, what can I do for you? How can we apply this in a quarantine? Is this applicable in a quarantine? Well, let me just give you one statistic I read the other day. Is that pornography viewing worldwide at last read was up at least 12%. Porn sites are getting in on this uh, whole money-making deal by giving away free memberships, right? That's just one picture. There's, There's also pictures of abuses of power behind closed doors, right? We're constantly reading about that now in the news with regards to the marriage relationship. And so if you're married or you're single or you're struggling, I feel like at least during this quarantine season and beyond, we can ask this question, how can we reflect God's self-sacrificing love for us seen in Jesus by treating marriage and human sexuality as a Van Gogh, protecting it, roping it off to be that true form of intimacy that God created it to be? We're shaped to reflect the intimacy that we will one day share with this church by protecting marriage and sex. Let's look at the third main point quickly. Uh, we are shaped as we reflect his generous justice. 24, 6, I'm going to pop around. Uh, verse 6 says this. 
No one shall take a mill or an upper, upper millstone in pledge, for that would be breaking or taking a life in pledge. And then 10 to 13, it says, When you take your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house and collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man whom uh, you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep on, in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge before the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. Then it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Again, Anthony, these are weird. What's going on? Well, well, these are pictures of generous justice. All of these passages in this section, 24, 1 to 22, address justice. Money owed, punishment deserved, terms uh, in fighting in the army that should be fulfilled. And that's good because it reflects the mixture of God's holiness and his love. But as these things are addressed, it also calls for generous justice and mercy. The first example of the millstone is actually an example of, of exploitation. Uh, basically, uh, the upper millstone, so when somebody had a, a, a two millstones to grind their grain after harvest that they sold or that they ate for their own family, there was a big one on the bottom for crushing and a smaller one on the top for moving things. Well, if that person falls into poverty and they owe someone money, uh, essentially they need to give them their pledge or their collateral. And so sometimes the, the lender says, give me your upper millstone. Well, what that does is it exploits the, the, the person who is living in poverty, but is, even though the lender is getting what he deserves, the poor person actually has now no way of making money and feeding his family and crushing that grain. There's a question of honor that we saw in 10 and 11, where even though the creditor has every right to go into a house and demand his payment, he's saying, no, stay outside. Don't shame him in front of his family. Let him come out and pay his debt. Verses 12 to 13, uh, the, 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 the collector could go easily to a poor person uh, who owes money and says, give me your coat as your payment. And what this is saying is, is don't take the coat of someone who could likely freeze to death if he goes all night without it. 19 and 22, we didn't read it, but God calls his people not to, not to harvest all the way to the edges of their field so that the poor could come and glean off of it. Today, that would be the same as saying, hey, I've got a $1,000 budget for groceries. I'm going to spend 900 on myself, and I'm going to leave 100 so I can care for those who don't have as big a budget as I do. Why? Deuteronomy 24, 18 says this, and this is at the end of this litany of laws. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Why does God make these laws? Well, simply put, he's saying, don't forget your prior poverty, your prior slavery that I, because of no merit of your own, rescued out of these things. Don't forget that. Demonstrate that grace and mercy and justice to the poor. Demanding justice is actually pretty easy. Generous justice is hard because it actually costs us something. Forgiveness, our stuff. And that's the picture that we have in the person of Jesus Christ, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, became poor, so that you, by his poverty, may become rich. Friends, a full understanding of God's sheer grace and generosity makes us generous as well as just.
Friends, I believe we are actually entering into a time of this pandemic where those who were ahead, and I heard, um, I heard someone say this this week, those who were ahead are likely to stay ahead, you know, socioeconomically, or at least even, while those who are behind are going to fall further and further behind. Now, I'm not an economist. I don't know these things. But look at our church that has probably experienced, um, you know, we're at about, I don't know, I'm guessing, but, but we're pretty high on our employment rate versus uh, a sister church who we help support right down the street. Um, they are uh, mostly a refugee and immigrant church, 95% unemployment rate. Let me conclude with this. Let me actually say this. Uh, To apply these things, what we're trying to do is on Friday send out an email giving you opportunities to engage, to show generous justice, to uh, try to restore order to the lives of those outside uh, of our world. And so I would just encourage you to continue to look there to apply some of the things that we're hearing here. Let me conclude with this now. If you've read about Tony Bennett, UVA's coach, you know that he's not simply trying to win championships with these five pillars. In fact, these five pillars are based on his Christian faith. And his heart is that these young men not win championships, not be simply successful young men, but that they grow into a greater narrative and are shaped to look like the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, as we live out God's program, God's Laws, God's uh, character, right? We're not applying these laws in the exact, exact same way today. We aren't just living life here on earth. We are living into an eternal reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the recreator, who stepped into our disorder that sin has caused and is one day going to totally reorder it, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus, the bridegroom, having laid down his life for his bride, one day finally presenting her, us, pure and spotless. Jesus, the just, after having met the designs, uh, the demands of the law on the cross for our sake, lavishing us generously with all the riches of his inheritance. Friends, this morning we can reflect this story and our God as we live out and are being shaped by it today and turning to Jesus in faith. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. Help us to wrestle well with it, uh, even as we uh, continue through our day. Uh, Thank you for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.